while William Wallace's victory at Stirling Bridge had been shattering for the English. The Battle of Bannockburn was the turning point. For the first time in these Scottish Wars of Independence, a King of Scotland had inflicted a massive and humiliating defeat upon a King of England. Edward II had gone running back to London, where he continued to squabble with his barons who despised him as the weak king he was. This was it, the moment the Scots would have to strike hard to gain the independence they had been fighting for for so long. There would never be a better time to take what was almost within their grasp. So Robert the Bruce and his exultant Scottish army took the fight to England. Welcome to this, the finale of our Scottish Wars of Independence, Highland Charge, the Scots invade. The Scottish victory at Bannockburn had been so staggering that for years afterwards England seemed almost dormant. Robert the Bruce knew England had a weak king in Edward II and that his own nobles hated him almost as much as the Scots did. If he could apply enough pressure, perhaps the nobles would force Edward to make peace and recognise Scottish sovereignty. From 1314, the Scots raided south of the border incessantly, and incredibly, Edward II had done pretty much nothing about it. Longshanks must have been turning in his grave. So it was time to turn the pressure up. Robert the Bruce took advantage of Edward II's lethargy and marched a large army to the important town of Berwick, the last Scottish stronghold still in English hands. It had been since the war's beginning in 1296. Now, in 1318, two of the Bruce's most trusted leaders, James Douglas and Thomas Randolph, the captors of Roxburgh and Edinburgh castles, now captured Berwick for the Scots too. The main coastal road to England now lay before the Scots, and realising the danger, Edward and his nobles suddenly snapped out of their squabbles. Assembling an army in 1319, they came north and made a beeline for Berwick. The Bruce had no intention of fighting a pitched battle against the main English army though, because, as the poet John Barber put it, it might well turn to folly. The Scottish king knew that if he lost a major battle, there was no fallback option, no real reserves waiting in the background to regroup with. All that he had gained since 1306 would be for nothing. But he also had no intention of cowering in a corner somewhere either. With Berwick, he had really just laid some bait and now waited for Edward to take it. Withdrawing the main Scottish army from Berwick, he left a well-supplied garrison in the castle with the wily Walter Stuart, the High Steward of Scotland in command. Stuart was something of an expert in defending sieges and now waited for the English to come and try their luck. The first part of Bruce's plan worked a treat, and Edward swallowed the bait hook, line and sinker. 
Instead of hunting down the Bruce and his army as he should have done, Edward continued on to Berwick and stayed there. Laying siege to the castle, he began to throw Englishmen at its walls, but each time Walter Stuart swatted them away. With Edward and his army taunted and embroiled at Berwick, it was time for the second part of the Bruce's plan. A lightning strike into Yorkshire. Some 10,000 mounted Scottish infantry rode deep into northern England, wreaking fire and death wherever they went. So many English men-at-arms had travelled to Berwick with the King that there were none left to confront this massive Scottish invasion, and Edward stubbornly refused to break the siege to pursue them. So instead, and bizarrely, thousands of clergy Priests, monks and friars were pressed into service to face the battle-hardened Scots. It seems utter madness, but the Chronicles of England tells us what happened next. Alas, what sorrow for the English husbandman that knew nothing of war. So come the Scots towards the Englishmen in a rush, and the Englishmen fled, for they lacked any men-at-arms almost all were slain. This was the so-called Battle of Mighton, where Edward had essentially thrown priests into a fight with Scottish warriors. The English Lanacost Chronicle tells us that 4,000 Englishmen were killed and another 1,000 drowned in the River Swale trying to escape. The sheer folly of Edward matched Bruce's own genius, because now the Scottish king got what he had planned for all along. Division and strife between Edward and his barons, who were horrified and outraged that northern England had been left to the Scots. Edward still wanted to maintain the siege on Berwick, but the powerful English noble Thomas of Lancaster refused and broke away, forcing Edward to do the same. With England teetering on the brink of civil war, their main army disbanded and headed for their homes. It was another embarrassment for the English king, and the pressure continued to build, but still independence wasn't recognised. So this kind of large-scale invasive raid was repeated again and again, culminating in the Great Raid of 1322, when the Scots won another battle at Old Byland. A large English force ran for their lives when James Douglas led a charge uphill while a party of Highlanders scaled some cliffs on the English flank and then came screaming down into their rear. So frequent were the Scottish invasions that large parts of northern England became depopulated through slaughter, capture, famine and evacuation. Thomas Gray's Scala Chronica says that the Scots were so fierce and their chiefs so daring and the English so cowed that they were as hares before greyhounds. The continual Scottish incursions weakened Edward's already precarious position still further and in 1327 he was deposed by his own wife, Queen Isabella, 
and her lover, Roger Mortimer. Ouch. The English throne ostensibly passed to Edward's son, who was crowned Edward III the same year. But he was just 15 years old, and real power remained with Mortimer and Isabella. There was, though, serious instability in England now, and the threat of civil war loomed large. Some agitated for the restoration of Edward II. Some said Edward III should be king in fact as well as name, and still others supported Mortimer. And into this volatility rode the relentless Scots yet again. But now time was beginning to run out. Robert the Bruce's health had just begun to deteriorate, and he wanted the English to finally recognise the Scottish independence that he had been fighting for for 20 years, while he was still alive to see it. So, in the summer of 1327, two Scottish armies under James Douglas converged together on an English hillside by the River Weir and waited for a showdown at Stanhope Park. This time, the English response was swift, Mortimer bringing Edward III and a powerful army to confront them. Mortimer took one look at the strength of the Scottish position and refused to join battle, instead drawing up on flat ground and inviting the Scots to fight there. James Douglas told him to make them. The showdown became a standoff. But while the English slept on the night of the 3rd of August, Douglas readied 200 of his best men for a daring raid on the English camp. A smash and grab of heroic audacity that would try to capture the young Edward III and take him back to Scotland. They crept quietly towards the English rear, terrified an English sentry would see them and sound the alarm. But no call came, and as clouds moved across the moonlight, Douglas decided now was the moment. Easing into their saddles, he and his men suddenly kicked their mounts into a gallop, thundering past the picket lines and making a dash for the royal tent. The camp wasn't as quiet as they had hoped, but the Scots cut about them fiercely as James Douglas shouted, Die, you English thieves! They slaughtered hundreds of disorientated and now panicking Englishmen in the flickering light of flaming torches, and James Douglas himself had a notorious duel with a giant Englishman armed with an enormous club. Dancing between blows, Douglas eventually managed to cut the giant down, but seeing the English resistance begin to grow, he gathered his men and raced back into the night. They hadn't managed to capture Edward, but they had devastated English morale. So, when Douglas slipped his army away to Scotland the very next night, the English did not pursue, and what might seem an anticlimax was anything but. The English had first refused battle, and then been spanked in the night. In short, Douglas had proved them to be fragile, spiritless, and exhausted. The cost of this campaign 
had been ruinously expensive for England, costing around £70,000, about £43 billion in today's money, or around US$57 billion. There was simply no money left to continue the campaign, let alone mount another, and by failing to engage the Scots at Stanhope Park, the English handed them a resounding strategic victory. And so, finally, with England penniless, divided and spent, Robert the Bruce got his life's wish. In 1328, Isabella and Mortimer agreed that England would make peace with Scotland, and in the Treaty of Edinburgh-Northampton, they recognised full Scottish independence from England, and Robert the Bruce and his heirs as rightful rulers of Scotland. The Bruce's success was almost poetic. Knowing that he had achieved his sworn aim of winning Scottish freedom, with his soul at peace, his body gave way. Just a few months later, in 1329, Robert the Bruce, King of Scotland, died at the Manor of Cardross. His last wish was that his heart should be embalmed and taken on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, before being brought back to Scotland to be buried at Melrose Abbey in Roxburghshire. In trying to fulfil his wish, James Douglas and a group of other Scottish knights travelled to Spain, where they were met by King Alfonso, who it seems was to send them on to the Holy Land. But sadly, when they accompanied him in a campaign against the Moors, they were virtually wiped out when they became separated from the main Christian army. A survivor, Sir Simon Lockhart, did manage to recover James Douglas's body and the casket carrying the Bruce's heart, returning them both to Scotland. While the heart failed to make it to Jerusalem, it was indeed buried at Melrose Abbey, where it remains. England and Scotland's history of conflict doesn't end with the Peace of 1328, but it did mark the first formal recognition of Scotland's independence by England, without any preconditions or rights of overlordship. Scotland's crown was finally accepted as equal to England's. Scotland was free. <laughs>